invite you to take a Bible and turn once again to the book of 1 Corinthians there in the New Testament. Today we come to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, page 960 from these Bibles in the pews. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, I'll just remind you that we have covered a uh, lot of subjects over the months while we've been going through this, and uh, some of the subjects that have been addressed by the Apostle Paul as he's in the city of Ephesus, far from the city of Corinth, and he's responding to a letter that they have written to him and some word reports he's gotten about things happening in the church. But he's answering their questions, questions about wisdom. He's addressed some of the divisions in the church that primarily were over personalities. He's talked about immorality in the church that was going, um, basically that was being ignored. He talked about lawsuits between believers. He talks about marriage and singleness and widowhood and head coverings in worship, and now we're in the section, the closing part of the section on spiritual gifts. And so today he's going to address another subject, and that is bodybuilding. Bodybuilding, that's right. I look out, and some of you, uh, I guess, are bodybuilders. Uh, Obviously, some are not. And is, uh, is Paul going to talk about protein shakes and workout routines? No, this is a different type of of bodybuilding. This is the word edify. It means to build up the local body, the body of Christ. And we come to to this chapter, and it's at the end of a section, as I said, on spiritual gifts. Um, Chapter 12, he listed those gifts. Chapter 13, he, he says that the most important thing is love, no matter how spectacular the gifts may be. Even if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am nothing, he said. And he emphasizes how crucial that, that is. Now we come to chapter 14, and he focuses on two gifts, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And that's, that's his focus here, to deal with those in the corporate gathering of the church. He's talking about public worship, though they did not use that term. They would use the term assembly or ecclesia. When you assemble together, that's like what this is, a corporate gathering for worship. Now, you have to remember that this was a very unique time in history, never to be repeated. It was the time when the original apostles were alive and God was laying the foundation for his church. We call that the apostolic period. They, the the original disciples who became the apostles plus the apostle Paul and the one who had replaced Judas, they became, Ephesians tells us, the foundation for the church. Like a building, if it's built correctly, you don't have to redo your foundation periodically. Some of us have foundation problems, but there are other reasons for that. But with a building, you may decide to repaint it or re-roof it or rearrange it or renovate it, but you don't do that with the foundation. The foundation is a one-time thing that is unrepeatable. It's unique. So when Paul here in this chapter encourages the gift of prophecy, he's not suggesting that any of us today are on par with those who are prophets in the Bible. 
Today, we are to test what is said by a person who claims to have a message from God. We're to test it with the scriptures. Paul is dealing with a difficult issue here. In fact, one of the most difficult in the New Testament. He's addressing, as I said, what happened in their corporate gathering, their worship services, and what exactly is this gift of tongues. Now, here's what I plan to do. Unlike a lot of sermons where I'll typically read the passage Then I'll go back and give you some headings and talk about the passage. What I want to do today is take the passage and basically give you a running commentary, paragraph by paragraph, through verse 26. So I'm not going to start off by reading the entire chapter or even the verses 1 to 26. But we'll get to the passage in just a moment. What was the gift of tongues? If you take a study Bible like the New Reformation Study Bible or the Geneva Study Bible... You'll find a note, if you've got one there in your lap, that Bible, it says this has generated much debate. One view is that tongues refers to some kind of ecstatic speech and is possibly related to the tongues of angels, but there's little evidence for this view. Another view, the New Testament shows how the Holy Spirit gave early Christians the ability to speak in foreign, recognizable human languages. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, then you know about this controversy. Uh, It's hard to find any church that hadn't been affected, and um, you get into discussions and debates and divisions over what some would call a, a prayer language. But it seems to make sense to me, from verse 2, that this gift of tongues that he's talking about speaks to God, utters mysteries, and in the Spirit. For the one, that's what it says, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So it was some sort of prayer language which needed an interpreter to be understood even by the person speaking it. Now when you first read this chapter, it appears confusing. And when I, I've never taught from this passage, I've never preached from this passage. I started the week, and I've just immersed myself in it from Monday through last night. And when I first read it on Monday, I was just dreading this. I thought, oh, no, I finally come to chapter 14. (laughs) Oh, chapter 13. Why didn't I do more sermons in chapter 13? Now I'm in 14. And so I began to, what I do is I take a Bible, and I go on the computer, and I use Bible Gateway. You got the Bible in 90-something languages, but I use English. And I print it out in this version, the ESV, and I print out and I, I start just with the passage and a, a pen, and I start looking for repeating words because typically those words that repeat show you the theme of the passage. And it's kind of like one of those pictures that you get where there's just dots on a page and you stare at it, and you suddenly you see another picture, a face, or a word. You know what I'm talking about, right? That's how this chapter is. You look at it at first, and it looks like just, man, I'm up to my neck in thorns. What's here? It's confusing. What's he talking about? And then a picture emerges. And it just wasn't me. Once I found it, I began to read a variety of commentaries, and they said the same thing. And that is the word that's repeated seven times. And I'll read it to you. It's the word edify or upbuild 
The one who prophesies, verse 3, speaks to people for their upbuilding. In verse 4, twice it says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. At the end of verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Same term, edify, build up. Then I won't read it now, but verse 12 and verse 26. So the point of the passage is that we are to do in corporate worship when we assemble together what builds up the body, the body of Christ, other believers. This is the underlying foundational message of the entire chapter. Now Paul is going to say how this does and does not happen in the church at not only at Corinth in the first century, but also in our churches as well. So let's look beginning at verse 1. I'll jump around to different verses Verse 1, he begins repeating what he has said in chapter 13, pursue love, make that the priority, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Desire this. Some equate this with preaching, but that doesn't make any sense with the passage to say that you may preach. Certainly he did not want every believer in the church at Corinth to preach from the standpoint of like what I'm doing now. But it does not, so it does not fit that that would be preaching, but he desires every Christian in Corinth to use this in some way, to be involved in this gift of prophecy. I think Michael Green had a very helpful definition. He, he wrote, Prophecy is a word from the Lord through a member of his body, inspired by his spirit, and given to build up the rest of the body. Prophecy is a word from the Lord through a member of his body inspired by his spirit and given to build up the rest of the body. It is not the same as the office of a prophet like we have in the Bible, like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and others. Now, you have to remember that this was the time in the church before the New Testament was completely compiled. If you were here for our conference last weekend, well, if you weren't, you can download those messages for free on our website from Dr. Kruger about the canon of the New Testament and when it was finalized and so forth. But here at Corinth, they would have had bits and pieces. They would have had some of Paul's letters. They would have had the complete Old Testament, but, and they would have portions of the Gospels. But they did not have near as much as we have. So what would have happened? Well, the worship services then, from what we can tell, would be like... Plymouth Brethren services today. Now, the Plymouth Brethren aren't, there aren't many numbers of them in the South. But if, in the Plymouth Brethren service, you, you don't have a clergyman like, like me bringing the message. You have various men in the congregation who would bring the sermon, and they would bring it from the Bible. They bring exhortations to the congregation from the scriptures. They don't believe in having uh, a paid clergyman. Mate, don't rush out, okay, and go join. But in the New Testament church, apparently, there's no reference here to a pastor at that time in Corinth. There would have been elders, but some may stand up and say this, and it's not like prophesying about the future or something bizarre. It would be, Jesus himself said, it is better to give than to receive. I believe God wants us to be a giving congregation. Let's help our brothers in Macedonia who are in the famine. 
It would not be, there's a chariot race this Wednesday, put your money on chariot number three. It was not that kind of thing. It might be that uh, it would be an exhortation that something Christ had said that, that they would have. So the prophecy was in accordance with the revealed truth that they had at that time. And a number of people would do this during the gathering, during the assembly together. They might say, just as the Lord healed the paralytic, lowered down through the roof by those people. And he said, your sins are forgiven, so we can have our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. So there was much more spontaneous than what we have today. Now I'm going to say more about that in a moment. But Paul's concern in verse 5 is that in the public meetings, the church be built up. That the body of believers that had gathered would be edified. Second, let's move on to where now he's going to talk specifically about tongues. I'm not, I'm not getting into the question of whether those first century gifts have ceased or not. That's a whole other subject that's not, that's not the purpose of this passage. I'm just dealing with 1 Corinthians 14 from the way I understand it and have studied at that time, okay? The others, oh, volumes have been written about. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy? He's saying there will be no edification if I come to you speaking in a language you don't understand. It will not benefit you. So he gives this illustration in verse 7 of these musical instruments. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Now, if you've been here at, on special services around Christmas or Easter, we, have, we add lots of instruments for Christmas music and Easter and sometimes around Reformation Sunday. And let's say there's a person playing the flute. And there's a person seated at a harp. Sometimes we'll have a harp here at Christmas. And you're, you're ready say, oh, I'm ready to hear a, be a beautiful song. And the person just takes his or her fingers and just goes up and down the strings like you do on a piano. You say, That's, I, don't, I don't understand what the person's playing. Or the, uh, as I was corrected, one of the flautists, who the person playing the, the flute, you know, gets their hands in the right positions and their lips. I know nothing about playing the flute. So if you gave me the flute and said, play something, it would be nothing but noise. You say, I, don't, I can't understand the song. That's what Paul is saying about tongues without an interpreter. It's like a flute or a harp that someone is, is just making noise with. But then he gets more specific, specific and it refers to a bugle. He says in verse 8, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Many military, through history, many military troops have heeded the calls of bugles to get their commands. They needed that sharp sound. The human ear hears higher frequency, better than low frequency. So they, they hear the sound of, in our day, reveille or call to arms or retreat or like our own taps that's used at the end of the day for lights out and also at the end of a military funeral. But if they can't hear that or the flute doesn't play, how do they have their commands? He's just making an analogy between this unintelligible speech 
in the public worship and how it doesn't help anyone, just like an instrument that isn't played correctly or a bugle that gives commands but they can't be heard. And then in verses 10 and 11, he talks about the number of languages in the world. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. He wouldn't have known how many at that time, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So take today. Most recent research I did is that there are 6,909 languages in the world. Now, some of those are only spoken by less than would be in this room right now. And none are written down. It may be in a particular village. And only those people would speak that language. So it's not like these are well known. But imagine going up to some people in a, in a village. or at, Well, let's, we don't even do that. Just imagine going up to the Atlanta airport. And you walk up to a group of people and you think, well, they look like they're from the USA. But you begin to speak and you realize you don't understand a single word they're saying. And you immediately feel distant from them. You feel like a, I have a hard time being from Alabama, a foreigner. It's two syllables, right? I mean, foreigner. It's three. Thank you, Bird. It's like that. So you, you're cut off. Now, forget the airport. The closest experience I've had with this in the past couple of months was Ikea on a Saturday. My wife dragged me up there well not really but we spent about two hours and we we work our if you hadn't been to Ikea I mean it is a global experience it is a cross-cultural missionary experience in Ikea the only English I remember understanding was at the checkout when the woman looked at me and said cash or credit I understood that so language separates and Paul takes the instruments, he takes the bugle, he ta talks, uh, takes the fact that there are all these languages in the, in, in the world and is saying that in the worship, you want it to be intelligible. When we assemble, it should be understood by all. It should not be like hearing a speech, a language you don't understand or, or an instrument you can't understand. And then he compliments them in verse 12. It's, it's really a compliment. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, they want the Holy Spirit to be at work in their, in their gatherings. He says, strive to excel in building up the church. We typically think, just like them, though separated by centuries, that to see the Spirit work, there needs to be some kind of demonstrable evidence. For them, it would have been this this unknown tongues, this, this ecstatic speech of some sort, then that's evidence of the Holy Spirit. And he compliments them that they strive for the manifestation, but he says what you really want to see the Holy Spirit manifested is when you edify one another. That's what shows the Holy Spirit. That's what manifests him. So he continues on in verses 13 and 19. And th th sometimes these verses can make us nervous because now Paul talks about himself. Back in verse 4, he had said that there is some personal benefit to the person who speaks in tongues, but he says you should pray that they be able to interpret. In other words, to engage his mind in a way which is not part of tongues. Well, look at verses 14 and 15, please. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, I don't even understand what I'm saying. What am I to do? So what's the solution to that? 
And he says, the solution is I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So he picks these two activities that we do individually and that we do corporately when we gather. Prayer and singing. And he says that when we gather to worship, we should enter into these with our minds and with our spirit. We should understand what we are doing. Therefore, it rules out the tongues. That's what he's getting at. But we should be emotionally involved. We should do it, to use our vernacular today, wholeheartedly. And this is hard. I don't know if you find it hard. But me being very conscious of this today, at the first service and at the second service, I was looking for Chuck, when, when we were going through the corporate prayer, uh, one of the corporate prayers we used, the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism and, and so forth, I was trying to focus and say, can I do this in, with my mind and with my spirit? That there's an understanding, I'm trying to take in and understand everything that's being said and enthusiastically affirm that and make it a prayer. And I don't know about you, but that is hard. I think our minds are prone to wander off or we either realize I'm singing this song, I'm not even thinking about the words, or I'm mouthing the words and I'm not, my heart's not in it, or we're in this prayer and, the, you know, praying together. Do I really, am I really thinking about when we pray together the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, am I really thinking about this or just saying that? It's a, I think we need to be reminded. Uh, it's, it takes great effort. I think it takes great effort to worship well. Not ruling out the Holy Spirit has to empower us, but humanly, if we just make it academic or if we don't have our hearts in it, we've fallen on one side or the other of the ditch. And so the temptation is to be disengaged mentally or to tune out. And in so doing, it doesn't edify anyone. Again, that's his point. In verse 17, he says, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. The goal ought to, in some way, I don't understand how, in some spiritual way, when we worship with our minds and with our spirit, it has an effect on other people around us that we don't see. And it has an effect on us corporately that the body is strengthened, it is built up. And we're also going to see in a moment it has an effect on the unbeliever as well. Then in verse 18, this is the one where we all get nervous. He says he speaks in tongues more than all of them. Ooh, what does he mean? Well, I know he went on to say, I'd rather speak five words of truth and prophecy clear than 10,000 words that people don't understand. Now, what about the unbeliever that comes into the service? Verses 20 and following. Well, he starts in verse 20, that we're to be mature in our thinking. Do not be children in your thinking. In other words, don't be immature. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then he says, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. End of quote. Thus, 
Tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What he does there in verse 21 is he goes back seven centuries. He goes back to the prophet Isaiah. If you want to look up that passage, it's chapter 28. Let me just briefly tell you what is going on in the chapter where he draws this verse. God's people have rebelled against God. God has sent prophets to them to tell them to repent, to turn back to God, to return and be faithful. Sadly, they don't do it. They continue in their disobedience. So God sends Assyrians, Assyrians in, who do not speak their language. And the people who don't speak their language that they don't understand are the tool for God's judgment. Paul takes that, brings it into the church, and says, here are these tongues that he's saying don't use, but if the unbeliever comes in, cannot understand what's going on, just like they could not understand the tool of their judgment in the Old Testament, so it's a sign of God's judgment. But then he shifts gears, and he says that consider in this way, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, but prophecy by contrast, is directed to believers. It brings God's message. Then in verse 23, he looks at it from a different angle. Are y'all still with me? You're going to think I've I've lost my mind. 1 Corinthians 14 has become my favorite chapter in 1 Corinthians. And I started the week with dread that I was getting to it. But here's why. This is exactly what we are dealing with today in churches, and that is a consumer mindset. People come into a worship service and say, what did I get out of it? What did I think about it? Was I built up? There's no emphasis on this here at all. The whole emphasis is on the body, is on building up the others. Instead, we say, what do I like? What do I not like? What do I... You get the point. And so as I... I, Let me get back to the passage. Verse 23. Tongues are not helpful to the non-Christian. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, just imagine that, and an outsider or unbelievers enter, a non-church person, a non-Christian person, will they not say you are out of your minds? In junior high school, I went to Panama City Beach for several days with a friend and his family. And one night we were out, definitely up to no good, seeing what kind of trouble we could get into. And we wandered across what ended up being, though we didn't know it at the time, a group of Christians on the beach gathered up, about 30 of them, having a meeting. But it was dark, and we just thought it, we thought it was a party. Little did we know. So we go up, and we sit down with the group, and then we notice some, they've got a guitar and they're singing a song and, and then a fellow stands up and teaches and then they say, let's pray. That's when it all broke, broke loose. And I'd never heard tongue speaking before and suddenly, boom, it's going on all around me. And you know what I thought? They are out of their minds. Let's get out of here. That's exactly what Paul says is going to happen if the unbeliever comes in and sees that. But the effect of prophecy, the word of God, is different. This time, Paul imagines an unbeliever entering the the public gathering. And he hears the word of truth from God, he or she, and, and it has a powerful effect. 
The unbeliever is convicted by what he hears. I'm paraphrasing the passage. His true state, his heart is laid bare before God. He humbles himself. He begins to worship God and to recognize the presence of God in the church. It is in action exactly what Hebrews says about the Bible, that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing into the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is as though God's word, like a sword, comes down and pierces the person. Now, what are some applications for today? Obviously, let me state the obvious, I'm just summarizing now. We've, We've left the passage as far as reading it. We should gather for corporate worship. There's no argument here, Paul telling them they should gather or they need to gather. He assumes it. Now, I'm as strong a believer in small groups and personal discipleship as anybody in this room. But that doesn't displace corporate worship, where we gather together and exercise the means of grace, the elements that God has given to us. We're not to forsake that. As we gather, second observation, each of us should be conscious that we are here to build one another up, to body build, even by the way we worship. Do I pray with my spirit and mind, my heart and my head? Do I sing with my spirit and my mind? Am I aware that in doing so, I may build up others around me and play a part in the evangelism of the unbeliever in our midst? Am I aware that there are others who are here, as verse 3 says, who need teaching or encouragement or consolation. They need comfort. And it's not all about me. It is about the body. And we all have preferences. And some of them seem silly. Some of them seem principled. I've got a pastor friend who used, well, many of you would know him, and he, he got a note from somebody in the congregation that said, God doesn't bless prayers over five minutes. Ah, okay, that's your opinion. But we want to, you know, we want to, I don't don't like every element in work. I mean, I don't, some stand out more to me. If I had my way, we'd sing Isaac Watts hymns every Sunday. Every Sunday. A couple weeks ago, Michael had uh, How Sweet and Awful is the place. I mean, I love, I love those. Uh, But Isaac Watts was at the forefront of the worship awards of 1690. The whole idea to allow hymns to be in worship and and move away from psalms only. And so we have preferences. They had preferences. And we look for the spectacular. And and what is he saying here? It's about the body. Um, Let me give you an example. I'm, I'm really not, I don't have a bone to pick, but we've made changes in the bulletin. And some have expressed various opinions about the new bulletin. But one thing I hope you'll notice about the bulletin, there's a reason behind it, is the font is significantly larger now. Because certain people, like standing in these shoes, can't see too well with 10-point font. And we had to make it smaller and smaller to get it all into one sheet of paper. So now we're up to 12 or 13. And I'm happy again. I don't care how many pages there are. But some people do, and that's... But I, was, I think I would hope to say, hey, if everybody can see better, make it this big if you want to. You know, make the font. If that helps, then I'll take one for the team, you know, to edify the body. Um, 
When it comes to prophecy, this is my third observation, we obviously have more, not less, than our first century brothers and sisters. They relied on portions of letters and uh, things that were not yet complete, uh, like we have, the complete canon, though they had all the Old Testament. We are blessed today with God's revealed word. And so we have the full revelation of God, the complete revealed message of God. And so we are in a much better advantageous position than the Corinthians were in. Fourth course, corporate worship, and this is, this is important, and there's a lot of confusion today about this, is worship for believers or unbelievers? Corporate worship, as we see here, is for believers. But we should be conscious of unbelievers being present. We can't act like everybody's on the same page. And the main difference that makes is that we are to strive that everything be intelligible. Our worship should, not, should be understandable uh, as much as possible. And we should not put up unnecessary obstacles. We do think about what effect the various things we do will have upon those who yet have not believed. It doesn't mean we water down the message or pretend to be people we are not or anything like that. But we, we, we're conscious that unbelievers are present, uh, hopefully, People today look for the spectacular. This is my fifth observation. People today look for the spectacular. But the normal way God changes uh, hearts is through the work of his word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. So let me ask you, as a reminder and as a prod, do you anticipate that God may be changing hearts and saving people in our worship gatherings every Sunday? And do you pray toward that end? I hope you do, and if you haven't, I hope you will. Six observation. When we come together, our purpose is to honor and glorify God through building one another up in various ways as, as an expression of our love for God and one another. So the evangelism of unbelievers is not the purpose of our coming together, but it may well be the result of our coming together. The reason people will and ought to be coming to faith in Christ among us is not because we're giving some watered-down, compromised version of the truth or a fake version of ourselves, but because they see God's greatness in our midst simply because we are being loving toward one another and loving God with all the will and spirit we can muster, with all of our sins and and shame and everything else, we're dependent on him and expecting him to work. That is what God uses, one of the things he uses, to draw unbelievers to himself. I heard years ago someone say, the primary ways God brings people to himself is through exposure to his word and exposure to his people. Last observation. This is the sort of thing Paul is talking about happening among the people of God when they gather together. That is what I hope and pray will be reality for us and will characterize our assemblies together. There's no reason to believe that sort of thing cannot happen here. There's no reason to believe that. Let's pray together. Our Father, some of us here came to Christ in the exact same ways that this unbeliever is described, this hypothetical unbeliever in, in 1 Corinthians 14. We came among the people of God. We saw something there we didn't have. They, we saw love for you. We heard truth. We saw love for one another that was beyond human ability. And you drew us to yourself, and we thank you. We pray that our worship services would 
be regulated by your word, that your word would be clearly preached, that we would worship from the heart in our prayers, in our songs, in everything that we do that would not be perfunctory, it would not be half-hearted, it would not be empty-headed, and that you might use that to build up your body, to draw in believers to yourself. In Christ's name, amen.